Welcome to episode 164 of the Energy Talks podcast. I'm energy and climate journalist Markham Hislop. Now, if you're a, a regular reader and viewer and listener of Energy Media's journalism, you'll know that uh, in the last couple of months, a month and a half, so basically since early February, when Imperial Oil revealed that there had been a huge 5.3 million liter uh, spill and a previous leak before that at its Curl oil sands plant in northern Alberta, we have been spending a lot of time looking at the various issues and problems with the Alberta Energy Regulator. And this isn't something that happened overnight, I have to tell you. There, for the last, I would say, four or five years, I've had various folks who are critics of the AER who have <laughs> pestered me uh, to do more work on this. And I, I've done the occasional interview because it is, it's is—it's really important and I'm interested in it. But I also recognized early on that this is literally the Grand Canyon of rabbit holes. Once you go down, it's very deep, it's very big, it's very complex and technical, and I've resisted. And after Curl, which is a very large spill, it created a, it was a national story, uh, a national emergency, not an emergency in some ways, but it, it was a big story. And I realized that I, I finally had to take the plunge. And I can tell you that the AER stories are everything I thought they would be. This is the world's biggest onion, and it's got more layers than you can imagine. And you can also imagine my my uh, pleasure at finding the work of Dr. Kevin Timoney. He's the principal investigator at Treeline Ecological Research and author of The Hidden Scourge, Exposing the Truth About Fossil Fuel Industry Spills. He has done more detailed work than anybody else I've ever seen. I'm pleased to have him on the podcast. And so welcome to Energy Talks, Kevin. Thank you for having me on the show. Well, this is, the more I dig into this, the more convinced I am that this is the key, the function of the, or dysfunction of the Alberta Energy Regulator is key to the to the future of the industry in Alberta. And the just a little context for our listeners, the environmental liabilities from all aspects of the industry. So we're talking about the oil sands projects up in Northern Alberta. We're talking about conventional uh, oil and gas, you know, wells and uh, oil and gas wells, and then all of the related infrastructure. The environmental liabilities are estimated at about $300 billion. Three, try to wrap your head around that. And the industry has been putting off you know, addressing these environmental liabilities for decades. They just keep punting it down the road. And the assumption has always been that the, that the industry will be here for, for decades more, it'll be very profitable for decades more, and will pay for the remediation and reclamation of these assets in some future point. Well, now the time of reckoning is coming. The energy transition is here. We're seeing already the junior sector of the industry being de uh, devastated and a lot of their abandoned, uh, their wells being thrown onto, they're, they're abandoned or in the Orphan Well Association already. And so they're the canary in the coal mine and there's more coming as, as the years progress. So it's very important that we learn about this. So Kevin, you've been doing this for like 40 years. 
you're yes, you're have. you are an old hand. There's uh, yeah, you are as experienced as anybody in the regulation of the industry and uh, from the environmental and ecological point of view. Tell us how you got into this. Like, you know, how you got got started on this, why 40 years ago, uh, you know, you you chose this. Well, I, I, when I when I graduated from the U of A, I um, I became a consultant and, uh, you know, I, I didn't immediately move into studying the environmental impacts of the fossil fuel industry that sort of evolved over time. Um, and if you if you do a lot of uh, research or ecological work in Western Canada, uh, it's it's um, it's sort of an inexorable process. You're going to have to address the effects of the fossil fuel industry. So, when I initially started out, I was doing work uh, where we looked at um, documenting the the sort of the ecosystems of natural areas across the province and uh, in in hopes of better managing those for the Alberta government. And over time, I then uh, worked in Wood Buffalo National Park as the park ecologist and got involved with uh, the Peace Athabasca Delta and the Peace River issues there. Uh, and then um, as, as you work in the Peace Athabasca Delta, you're going to notice that uh, upstream on the Athabasca River, there's a very large uh, industrial development. So this is how I sort of came into um it wasn't a plan to 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 be um, a specialist in in the environmental effects of the industry. It just sort of evolved naturally. The story of how you you why you wrote this book, which was published uh, last year, and, and I'll I'll put a link to uh, uh, to your publisher in the show notes for anybody who wants mm -hmm. to pick up a copy of the book. And if you're at all interested in this, I I would. Uh, encourage you to do it because I'm also going to provide a link to background documents that Kevin has provided. And I tell you, it's a treasure trove of information. Uh, a lot of it, sure, a lot of it's technical, but a lot of it is not. He explains many of these issues in a way that the average uh, person can can access and understand. But tell us why this idea of you were looking at the data on, on spills provided by the Alberta Energy Regulator, and you noticed a pattern that caught your attention. What was it? Yes, I was part of another project. I was I was looking at um, the, the specifically the effects of the bitumen industry in northeastern Alberta. So I was gathering various data sets, and I came across a data set that was uh, given to me by Leslie Young, an investigative journalist from Toronto. And that was uh, a, an early iteration of the AER um, spills database. And so I just started to uh, see if some of the information in that file was relevant to what I was doing in Northeastern Alberta. Uh, and I found that when I was looking at the um, crude oil spills in particular, I found that uh, for about 15,000 spills, the regulator was recording perfect recovery. So if, if they spilled 10 cubic meters of crude oil, they reported they recovered 10 cubic meters. If they reported 11, it was 11, et cetera, et cetera. And so that 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 sort of perfect recovery, which was in 54% of all crude oil spills in Alberta are reported as perfect recovery, that sort of... Uh, high level of of uh, recovery is not possible in nature. It's just physically not possible. And so that that initially raised a red flag with me that I thought, okay, these data are too good to be true. And if they're too good to be true, then what else in the regulators data 
are not reliable or not credible. And that's set me on that six and a half year long journey where I I gathered uh, information from not only the Alberta regulator, but then I expanded it to Saskatchewan, North Dakota, Montana, and then the National Energy Board pipeline incident database. So um, after several years of doing this, I then had data from uh, over 103,000 spills that allowed me to get a pretty good handle on how the industry was reporting uh, incidents to the public. And I, I, you note in your in in the I can't remember if it was the book or or the background information, but out of those hundred and three thousand, just under eighty thousand were from Alberta, and Alberta was far and away the worst. Yes, yes. In terms of the accuracy of their data, uh, when you compare it to credible scientific information, and also when you look at the data uh, in terms of uh, statistical forensic techniques. Um, they, the the Alberta data are far and away the most um, subjective, we'll say, to put it in a polite um, in a polite way. The 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 self reporting by the industry is really disastrous because essentially you have the polluter is reporting to the regulator um, unreliable information, and the regulator is not uh, does either not have the competence to understand it's not credible or doesn't uh, bother to verify uh, the information. So what I found uh, is, is that a large proportion of the, the regulatory data that is produced uh, by the, uh, the, the AER and available to the public is, is just simply not true. Well, that's a real eye opener, and I think this is a good time for us to talk about regulatory capture. Now, we'll we're going to address this later in the interview in in more detail because you do discuss it in in your book. But I've also done a number of interviews, and you can find uh, a few episodes ago my interview with Professor Jason McLean from the University of New Brunswick, who's an expert in regulatory capture. And then I've had other interviews uh, since that, and other conversations. And the point that gets made over and over again is. The industry was begun in Alberta. It was the regula regulation of it was begun in 1938, and particularly since the 1950s, it was designed to be captured. The regulator was designed. The the, in, the Alberta has always, always, always prioritized development, profits, and job creation over in over the environment, and and so and it's not and and. Professor McLean makes this point. It's not just the regulator. The political culture has been captured. The politicians and the political parties have been captured. The Department of Energy has been captured. And it's just in the air. And I worked in the industry for five years from 2003 to 2008. It is just there are no critics inside the tent. Kevin, you're one of the few I've met. <laughs> and, and, and I'm now becoming a critic inside the tent. And I'm telling you, people don't like it. Nobody wants to listen to you because mm -hmm. they don't like to be have it pointed out. They don't like to have their narrative exploded. Right. And that's essentially and that's essentially what we're doing here. Mm -hmm. And it, that's really important context because listener, as you go on and you listen to, to Kevin, you're gonna be going, How in the world did any does anybody let this go on in the in the modern age? How, or even, you know, the last 30, 40, 50 years. And it's because the the industry has so thoroughly captured all parts of the process here that it is always expected 
that the the industry's interest, not the public interest, will prevail. So if it comes down to accurate data and penalties for regulations that have been breached, all of that, the industry's interest will will be the one that triumphs, not the public's interest in protecting the environment. Have I got that? Is that a fair comment? Yes, I think it is. Yes. Okay, so let's let's keep going and talk about the data and how they were analyzed. And you've you've got three main lines of evidence here: field data, regulatory data, and the scientific literature. What can you tell us about those? Right. So I the, the regulatory data are the the over 103,000 spills that I gathered from the five regulators. But then I also uh, did a fair amount of field work uh, myself in Northwestern Alberta and uh, in Central Alberta. Uh, and then uh, with the cooperation of several scientists, I gathered more data from uh, from the, the Canal Road area where they've studied uh, crude oil spills over a 70 year period. I got more data from central, uh, north central and northeastern Alberta from a professor at the U of A. And then I gathered a large data set from the Rumsey Moraine uh, fescue grassland region in uh, south central Alberta. So together, that's was, that was uh, 454 high quality um, study plots with chemistry, um, uh, plant and um, physical data. Um, and, and then I added, uh, probably about 20 more plots in Strathcona County around my home here in the late phases of the book where I uh, was looking in detail at spills that were um, sort of uh, not, not well documented in Strathcona County. Uh, and then beyond that, I, I had uh, access to, of course, the scientific literature and the gray literature from industry, which makes a very nice uh, comparison between scientific studies and then what the industry reports. Um, I also conducted a FOIP of uh, the AER of, of their records, um, and I, I used a, a fair bit of correspondence and interviews with uh, people who are in um, who you know who have been involved for many years. Uh, and then I also depended on uh, the contributions from investigative journalists to sort of round out the the data. So it, overall, it's a quite robust uh, set of information that allowed me to. Uh, look at the data um, from within the regulators and then outside the regulators to compare um, the the industry reported data with scientifically uh, determined data. Okay, so what is field data? Is that the data that the companies collect and then send to the AER? No, the field data is the data that we collected as scientists. So, so the the regulatory data are a uh, uh, different data set. So basically what happens uh, when they report a spill to the regulator, they will essentially fill in a form. They will say, we're in this location and we spill this much uh, of this kind of fluid and this is how much we recovered. And these were the, uh, was it a sensitive area? Yes, no. Was there habitat damage? Yes, no. Were there wildlife effects? Yes, no. That's all from the industry. And then the industry submits that to the regulator and the regulator unfortunately doesn't subject that information to any sort of quality control. Uh, and they just sort of keep it as a record. And, and then if you were to go online to the AER's website now and download the AER data set, that's what you'll get. You get unverified information that is rife with errors. Well, I can tell you, uh, as somebody who's covered a number of these, uh, I have never seen a press release. I'm sure it's happened, 
you know, but not in my experience where I've seen a leak or, or a spill where the industry actually they always say there was no observable uh, impact on wildlife and on fish, on fish habitats and so on. And I, I know in the Curl instance, the uh, the local First Nation, the Fort uh, uh, Fort Chippewan, the Athabasca Fort Chippewan, uh, Athabasca Chippewan Fort First, First Nation. Nation. That's it. That, there we go. So <laughs> AFCN. I can remember that. So anyway, they 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 took a, a helicopter and flew over the area, and they said, "Well, you can see moose tracks in the snow, walking down to the the body of water." Uh, that way, where you can see the uh, the contamination from the from the leak of the seepage water. It, it's industrial water. It's been contaminated, and, and it has above average or above acceptable levels of various uh, toxic compounds. And you can, he said, they can. Here you've told us that there's no observable impact on, and here's here's moose tracks going down to this body of water. Now, though, those two things, both of them, can't be true. Right. And and this is uh, basically that is the standard boilerplate response they issue for every incident. It, it's almost this verbatim where they say no uh, wildlife or, or habitat effects have been detected. Well, they haven't been detected because they didn't go out and document them. So it's 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 basically a, a um, completely a false statement to make because they've got no evidence to support that information. And even when uh, there are data gathered that that uh, document deaths to uh, amphibians and deaths to birds and whatnot, they will still usually say no habitat affected, no wildlife affected because they simply don't go out and compare the information with what's being uh, submitted by the industry. So it's it, it's uh, yeah, I, I read that with every spill and it's completely silly. You know, there's Kevin, no scientific I, credibility. Have you got personal experience where the there was a spill? The industry said there's no observable impact on, you know, wildlife habitat, fish or, or, or on wildlife or fish. And then you've gone out in the field and found yourself that that was not true. Oh, certainly. Yeah. In northwestern Alberta, in the Pace spyglass um oil spill, there were uh, very well documented effects to uh, to waterfowl and to uh, lynx, um, woodland caribou, um, great blue herons in the area, um, uh, what's it, killdeer, uh, various ducks, a species, they were all right in, in the oil spill area. And, uh, you know, and, and yet the, the, and also we had a wildlife camera there that was put up by the, the Deneta First Nation. So we could see the uh, the caribou uh, and lynx and, and other animals walking right through the oil spill. Um, yeah. And, and, and then in the, the Apache saline spill uh, elsewhere in the Northwest, there were major ecological effects to uh, birds and amphibians and, um, and to, you know, uh, ducks. Uh, that were not, um, you know, they weren't really uh, recorded by the by the industry. Uh, another example was another saline spill where the area was so contaminated that they they had to excavate a pond, and then even though the pond was contaminated, when they finished, they called that 
they created wildlife habitat. So it's, <laughs> you can't win. Oh, goodness. Well, let's talk about that Apache spill. Uh, in your book, you call it the Apache 15-09 spill. It uh, occurred on the 5th of May, 2015. Uh, and the AER inspect went out and inspected it on the 22nd of June in the, uh, in 2016. Uh, tell, tell us this story, because I, I just thought this kind of illustrated, you know, the one of the how and why the the AER is is deficient in so many of these areas yeah well the 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 initial um discovery of of the spill was reported uh probably weeks after the actual spill started so there was a, a major breakdown there in in the monitoring so the spill had been ongoing for several weeks eventually the first nations were informed they went out and they were quite concerned it's a it was a major spill. I think it was over fifteen thousand cubic meters of saline water. It caused a tremendous amount of habitat damage, uh, a lot of uh, wildlife deaths, and uh, and it was you know it was simply it wasn't necessary in terms of um, it was so badly monitored that the spill went on for much longer than it should have. And so, how long right did it go now, on? How long did it go on? Uh, I think it was several weeks before it was actually reported, and they and they took some uh, action to to shut it down. Now I understand. Okay, so when when oil and gas gets produced, particularly oil, there's produced water, and it's very briny and it's very salty. And is this the the source of the saline water? That's uh, the, the saline we're talking about. Yes. Yes. So um, it it really how how much saline uh, water is in a spill depends very much on the spill. So you can have, for example, a crude oil pipeline that's that breaks and spills. That's going to have just crude oil in it. But you may have what's called a multi-phase pipeline that could have crude oil and saline produced water or even other other uh compounds flowing through that pipe. So if, if you have a spill at a, at a battery or a well pad, again, they can be very complex. Typically, you don't have a pure spill of anything. When you have a spill, you're typically going to have a mix of produced water, saline produced water, crude oil, and uh, maybe some nat natural gas, some condensate, some contaminated water, etc. Right. And that's from when that, that's the conventional oil and gas uh, production as right. opposed to the oil sands, which is a, a completely, different. completely different system. Yeah. Now you, you quoted a, an AER inspector's report and I want to read this off. So bear with me for a moment. So quote, large spill from a few years ago located at this site. And that's the Apache site we're talking about historical offsite contamination to the East of Belize. Although map shows offsite impact, it is still contained in the developed area minor minor impact and should be considered low risk in comparison to other sites no water impacts anticipated and yet you note in your book that the they were fined for it it was i mean it was that serious and by the way 15 cube right. uh, it's actually 15 million uh liters, liters. so it, we're, yeah right. we're talking about a lot and yeah. so and you could see it from space Literally, the satellites yes, could, yes. you know, caught. Yes. It showed up on satellite imagery. Yes, yes, and you could you can see when when I looked at other satellite imagery, you could see where the saline water had escaped containment and it killed large areas of of uh, wetland, uh, larches and uh, 
and black spruce wetlands because they're extremely susceptible to to salt water. Right. And and this the area that was affected was a minimum of 42 hectares. And right. and then Apache was was what kind of a, a penalty was uh, assessed to Apache for harming the environment? You know, I, I don't remember. I'd have to look it up, but it was it was quite small relative to the area that was damaged. Yeah. Yeah. They, and the, the penalties are typically fairly, fairly small regarding uh, in, in relation to the damage. Yeah. Right. And I'll make a point. Uh, anybody who's interested in this particular question, just yesterday, you can go to the Energy Media YouTube channel and see my interview with Drew Uchuk, who is a lawyer with the Public Interest Law Clinic at the University of Calgary. And he wrote a blog post about a uh, an administrative penalty that was assessed to a, comp a producer that had by they, they broke a, a regulation. They, they had a, a stack that was that was uh, uh, venting uh, sulf uh, sulfur dioxide. It's very poisonous. Uh, and so you have to vent it up high into the air. And the, the, the regulation said 100 meters. They actually built it at 75 meters. They didn't notice for nine months. They're required to uh, inform the AER immediately. They didn't do that. Uh, and instead they just went, oh, well, we'll just do another study that shows seven, you know, 75 meters is fine. And the AER said, oh, okay, that's great. Well, we'll, we'll prove your new, we'll, we'll prove the new height, uh, retroactively. And they, uh, they, uh, applied a, an administrative penalty of $6,500. And it's yeah. just literally, yeah. the, it's, it's, it's the cost of doing business. It's probably the, the rig shack shacks coffee fund for the year. You know, that's that's how right. little it is. It's yeah. ridiculously small. Yeah. And so right. where if nothing else, if nothing else, if you can't levy acceptable and appropriate penalties, there's no incentive for breaking the rules. Right. Yeah. Yeah. There's the the only incentive is to just do exactly what you've been doing all along because it pays well. You have to do very nothing, uh, virtually nothing to protect the environment. And when there's a problem, you you usually will get away with it. And if you don't, it's a tiny penalty. Right, in this like case- a parking ticket. That's exactly right. It's a, That's exactly the example that Drew used is, uh, well, why would I go pay, you know, park in the in-park lot and spend $20 when I can take the risk of parking on the street and maybe get a $12 ticket? You'd rather get the $12 yeah. ticket and you might not get anything. And that and right. that's the way the industry the industry approaches this. Okay. Mm -hmm. Well, let's talk. A, you you've got a section on in your book about the overview of spills, number, kinds, sources, and locations of spills. Maybe if you could describe that for us, please. Sure. Um, so, what I, what I wanted to first um, sort of do for for your listeners is to is to demonstrate that um, when I'm talking about the spills in the book, it's only one piece of a pie. So what I focused on mainly were spills from 1975 to 2018 in Alberta. But there were spills that have been spills happening in Alberta uh, since early in the 20th century. Uh, back in even to 1902 was the first uh, well that was, was built. So all of those data are basically, those incident data are lost and I tried to dig up as much as I could. So that's another set of missing data. Then there are many, many spills that take place after 1975 that never got reported. That's another data set. And then there's unconventional spills from 
for example, bitumen that are not part of this data set. And people may ask, well, why aren't bitumen spills part of the AER data set? Well, it's basically a dog's breakfast of, of monitoring decisions that were made over time. When they initially started to develop the bitumen sands region, all of the reporting for incidents was to Alberta environment. And they kept that until, well, it's essentially still going now, but they've split off a little bit to come to the AER. So may, about 95% of all the incidents that happen in the bitumen sands region never even get reported to the AER. So that's another set of data. Then there are spills that take place at refineries and tank farms, product distribution pipelines, trucks and railway cars, and then um, end users, and, and also from the um, for the, the at, at the at the factories and whatnot that are sort of um, not part of the data set. So so even though I'm going to talk about many many thousands of spills, I'm only talking about one small piece of the pie. So I'm talking about upstream production spills, primarily in Alberta from 1975 to more or less the present. And, you know, and then I focused in that, I looked at primarily crude oil spills and saline spills. Right, and just as an, as an aside, um, earlier last, well, last this past week, uh, I emailed the AER and I said, look, I mean, you know, you you the curl spill, uh, there was two things, uh, and I should make this point for the listeners. There was a leak in that's, uh, in uh, from a seepage, uh, uh, it's not a seepage pond because they had a they had a spill from a seepage pond that is five point three million liters. But prior to that, a year, I think it was early uh, in the spring of of twenty twenty two, there was a there was another leak of wastewater that got in it it actually got outside of the the, the curl property, and that particular leak was never wasn't reported. Uh, it was reported to the AER, but nobody bothered to tell the, the first the local First Nations about it until the spill happened in late January of 2023. So, so I, anyway, I, I emailed the AER and, I, and, and you had given me some questions to ask about, you know, like if a person wanted to know how bad this spill was, what, what should they ask for? And you gave me, you know, three or four questions I should ask. And I asked the AER and they said, sorry, we're not giving you that information because the investigation is still underway. Well, excuse me. I, yeah. I thought you'd done the yeah. invest investigation. Yeah. And then on top of that, so I talked to, an, uh, you know, I, I, I talked to one of my sources in the industry who, you know, has been around for 30 years and, and used to work for one of the big uh, oil sands companies. And, and she said, you know what, uh, not that long ago, um, the AE, uh, the AER, the ERCB, which was the pre-2013 uh, predecessor to the AER, would make a point of, of forcing the, the industry to release, you know, what were the chemicals in that prop, that water? You know, in that fluid, right. and 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 where exactly did it go? Because it, that was in the public interest to know that, and right. and she and and she even went to the point of saying once the the ERCB came in and said, "You are to the company, you're not releasing this information to the public through journalists. We're going to do it for you. We will actually take over your communications function, and we will release this data because that's how how strongly we believe it should be in the public interest." And now, right. the, what's the AER? No, sorry, we're not talking to you. We're, we're just, it's under investigation. Yeah, yeah. And and we might not know for months if we ever know. And by then, everybody's not paying attention to it. Right. And that that's a standard technique they use is to say, this, this is a matter under investigation. 
we can't release any information. And, and so maybe two years from now, they might release some information, but essentially it's just a technique they use to prevent the release of information. And the, the ERCB, as you point out, the ERCB was much more uh, reasonable with the public, much more forthcoming. Um, the AER is sort of the, the worst case scenario of any sort of regulator because under the, uh, uh, the Responsible Development Act, Energy and Responsible Development Act, uh, they have now far more powers than the ERCB ever had. And, and so they can sit on all sorts of information uh, and, and uh, it, it's, it's, it doesn't get out to the public in a timely manner. Tell us a story about suffering. Right. Tell us a story about your FOIP requests and the form in which the, the, the data was, or the information was provided to you. Yeah, well, quite often what, what they will do with uh, FOIP requests is that they will give you information in, in paper format, not in electronic format. And so if you you may have 6,000 pages of a FOIP, um, and it's if it's in paper format, you can't use it because it it's not in a computer file, right? So you 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 may, you may request it, okay, I, I need this in a PDF format, but then they they will give it to you as pictures. So if you have a page of text, it's a photograph. So when you scan for the word oil or saline, it's not there because it's all pictures. So uh, yeah, it's, it's, a, it's a technique to give you information that they have to, but they actually prevent you from using it in an efficient way. So then what you need to do if you're truly determined is to take this information, rescan it with optical character recognition to convert it to text and then you can use it, but right. it's, it's, a, it's an onerous procedure. Right, of course, and what they're doing is they're not saying, I won't give you the data, they're just making it really difficult. And and I'm right. sure if, uh, you know, I, I tweeted out the day, the day that the AER responded to me, I, I tweeted them out and said, we will no longer, be, Energy Media will no longer be reporting strictly on AER press releases because it's very clear that they can't be trusted. And yeah. I, and I yeah. think, I think if I had to, if I had to, uh, we're, we're working on a deep dive and, you know, so we're always thinking ahead to the headlines of, of, of these things. And I, and I think this one will be broken trust because this is yes. a regulator that very clearly uh, is not working in the public interest. It's working in the ind primarily in the industry's interest. And I think if the trust uh, isn't broken, it's only because people don't know. And yeah, but the but yeah, in, but really the trust has been broken. Yeah, and and the what what the AER excels at uh, is basically holding on to information that the industry gives them uh, for the purposes of facilitating hydrocarbon exploitation, and, and and they also have a fairly good public relations staff. But in terms of scientific expertise to understand the ecological information. They have virtually none. And uh, yeah, so it's it's a situation now that it just makes me um, so, so concerned because let's take, for example, sensitive areas in Alberta. Sensitive areas were designated by Alberta Environmental Protection some years ago as a means to help people to, to minimize environmental impact. So Alberta Environmental Protection classified the entire province in terms of their sensitivity. Uh, and so you could look on a map. Is this a sensitive area? Yes or no. 
Well, Al Alberta, uh, well, ERCB and then later AER uh, was supposed to use those sensitive areas as one of the fields to fill in for every spill. And I noticed that in the vast majority of cases, they said sensitive area equals no. In other words, it's not a sensitive area. I then compared those, those data to what the frequency of sensitive areas should be based on the alert environmental protection data. And I found that the AER was understating the incidence of sensitive areas by a factor of 200. So for wow. every 200 sensitive areas, they were saying there was one. So then I contacted EAER. I said, your data are demonstrably false. You're underestimating, you're understating sensitivity by a factor of 200. What are you going to do about it? They said, we'll get back to you. They got back to me about a week later and they said, we have fixed the problem. I said, excellent, what have you done? We, not, we have a new rule in our data entry now when the sensitive area field comes up, the only valid answer is no. <laughs> so they That's fix it. your they That's fix how your they fixed it. They fix your problem by making the making the question go away. Yeah, they yeah. So now now when you look at any spill in Alberta, the sensitive area will always equal no. And even though I know that that's false, the average reader is going to look at that and say, "Oh, well it's not a sensitive area. That's good." But this exactly. you know, this this is how they fix the problem. They just they by edict, they say sensitive areas no longer exist. So I want to relate a little, a little anecdote from Dr. Lauren Fitch, who I interviewed uh, last week, and uh, you find that on the uh, our YouTube channel. And it was about his area was he's, he's a retired uh, fish and uh, wildlife uh, ecologist with the province, and he was an adjunct professor at the University of Calgary, and. Uh, he said that, you know, during the course of his career, it used to be that uh, he and his colleagues uh, who, you know, would have firsthand knowledge of many of the areas of Alberta and you know, intimate knowledge of habitat, that that kind of information. And, and they used to get together and confer with their regulatory colleagues all the time. And over the last, you know, I think basically since the and we'll get into this a little bit, but there's a big scandal around 2018, 2019, in which the, the CEO of the AER was was fired and some other staff was let go. And after that, the the uh, AER uh, tightened up and, and it's and it slashed its voluntarily slashed its budget by 25 percent and cut its staff by by 25 percent. And suddenly these. The, the kind of information exchange that Lauren and his colleagues have been doing for you know years and years and years ended. And so yes. if you were an, if you were a regulator, you were an inspector, uh, assuming you know given the few that are remain at the AER and and you wanted some information about a, a potentially sensitive area, you wouldn't just call up your your colleague over at uh, Alberta Environment and say, "Hey, can I speak to Lauren?" And Lauren, what do you think about you know the this particular area and what you know what advice can you give me or point me to studies? Any of that done, finish. And this yeah. is the very yeah. subtle. This is the subtle way they sabotage the process so that it's all invisible. Right. It's all behind closed doors. And until people right. like you or or Lauren come out and tell these stories, we would never know. Right. And yeah, it's it's their they're masters of information control and they're they've gotten better at it over the years. I mean, people have told me uh, um, that, you know, that sorts of the, the sorts of first person eyewitness accounts where they formerly worked in the oil patch and they would go, go into a site um, 
and find that the oil uh, storage tanks were were leaking. Crude oil had spilled uh, to the top of the uh, the top of the the berm around the site, and they would go in with a backhoe, break the the dike, let the oil spill out onto the surrounding land, then cover it with gravel, tamp it down, walk away. They never reported it to the industry. No one ever came out to inspect. This was standard practice. So, you know, there, there, there are all sorts of things that you would never find out about unless you can find eyewitnesses who are actually involved. And one of the things that's happened with the, the staff cutbacks at the AER is now more and more, they're going through this one-stop system where it's all re reporting is online. And there was a very famous case that came up a few years ago where uh, uh, a very... <laughs> a very bright young engineer at one of the companies real, realized that she could go in and she could manipulate the online system for reporting reclamation and and she could she could game it so that it would issue an, a reclamation certificate so that means that the the the, the uh, well is is no longer producing and it's been claimed it's been plugged and and the landscape around it has been reclaimed and brought back to its original original condition and she could get this reclamation certificate for for producing wells so from, from wow. the AER's point of yeah. view from the AER's point of view um they they would say oh well that's a reclaimed well meanwhile it's producing oil and not yeah, only that yeah. she actually gave seminars within her company to teach her colleagues how to do it wow. and and this is just this is just one of the few instances that we know and many that we don't know and here's my point is as the AER cutback and as this problem with environmental liabilities has burgeoned the AER is relying more and more on industry self-reporting. This never, there's never inspected and never verified. So as bad as the problems right. were in the in the data period that you're talking about, Kevin, it appears that since this big scandal with ICOR in 2018, 2019, that things have actually gotten much worse. Yeah, I, I agree. I mean, not well, I, I shouldn't say that my data stopped in 2018. The regulatory reporting data that I used stopped in 2018, some into 2019. But I've kept up on the on the incident uh, reporting sort of um, through other sources. So my data are pretty current through March 2022. And I'm, I'm familiar with a lot of these uh, these horror stories where you 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 hear about reclamation. Um, Amazing. And well, I'm going to be in Alberta, not next week, but the week after. And I've already made interview uh, interview uh, arrangements with um, a number of farmers, uh, some in the Red Deer area and some in the Vegreville, Two Hills area. And I'm going to be taking my camera out and we're going to be uh, shooting some of uh, interviews on well site leases. And there, I, I won't get into the details here, but there are going to tell horror stories about how these landowners, these farmers were basically screwed over in the worst way by first the oil companies and then by the AER. And now they have they have wells on their land that are leaking, that uh, that uh, that they can't even legally, they can't even go on their own property because it still remains a well site, even though the well isn't right. isn't active and 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 uh, and there are no plans. There's no owner of the well anymore. The thing is in limbo. And there are hundreds, maybe thousands of these cases all across the province. And the problem here, I, I think, Kevin, is the one that you confronted when you first started this 
through your tenacity and because of your experience and the expertise you have, you've gathered all of this information together, put it, you've, you've, you've given it a framework, you've given it, you've analyzed it, come to conclusions that nobody's done before. And that's extraordinarily useful. But there are these other stories out there that involve the, the Alberta energy regulator in the industry that nobody's done that with yet. Nobody's done the reporting. Nobody's done the, the analysis. No academic has you know gone and, and, and analyzed it and written a book about it. And so all of this happens in the shadows. And 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 meanwhile, you know, the 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 narrative, the industry's narrative, eh, you know, everything's fine. Don't look over here, nothing to see, folks. You know, we're we're the most environmentally responsible oil on the planet. We're the most ethical oil on the planet. The reality out in the field is a totally yeah. different, yes. totally different. Would you agree with that? Yes, I, I agree. Uh, I have never come across a fossil fuel industry site that is not recognizably different from the surrounding uh, natural communities. Uh, and so this is one thing I discovered and I came up with what I call the disturbance signature Whenever you look at a fossil fuel industry site, there are a number of attributes that tell you um, that this site is has been damaged. And those attributes include the sorts of plants and animals that can exist there, and then the physical and chemical characteristics of the soil and the water and the sediments. So yeah, they talk about reclamation, but in terms of actual um, proof of that, when you go to these sites, you'll find that they are uh, essentially permanently damaged. And one thing I wanted to ask you, Kevin, Can is you... you made you made the point uh, that okay, you've looked at these other areas like North Dakota and Saskatchewan and and so on, but Al Alberta. Why is Alberta so much worse than other jurisdictions when it comes to the regulator? Well, I think. It it's just more effective regulatory capture over a longer time. So the culture has been, you know, completely uh, given over to the production uh, in the maximization of the of the profits from the hydrocarbons. The other jurisdictions seem to have a, you know, a, a less um, a less sort of a scorched earth policy towards their towards their management. Yeah. Well, you can. I, I, yeah, and in I, terms I, of. You know, as, as somebody who grew up in Saskatchewan, you know, I, I spent a lot of years in Saskatchewan, about 25 years, and 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 really the oil industry there in any significant way really uh, uh, started with uh, or, you know, became significant with the with shale production, which got started around 2008, 2009. And it may be that the, and I'm just hypothesizing here, but it may be that because the, uh, regula the regulator there uh uh, really became significant. Uh, the industry became significant, and then the regulators' uh, influence or or position became more more important. That they did it later on, and and maybe the culture hadn't been as captured maybe as it was in Alberta, which has you know seventy years of it. And and if you look at other areas like in the U.S., like North Dakota, same kind of thing. There wasn't much before the Bakken. There really wasn't much right. of an oil industry in North in North Dakota. And so uh, the standards were higher in the that you know the last ten to fifteen years than they maybe were uh, you know fifty seventy years ago. Yeah, it it could it could be that it could be simply something within the Alberta culture that you know sort of 
forces this it's almost like an environmental extremism where they 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 refuse to acknowledge any sort of ecological <laughs> impacts or or science of any of any sort it's uh yeah it's it it's quite an outlier in terms of the overall quality of their management and their data and and I want to wrap up this conversation, Kevin, with a, a a warning again. Why this is so important? I mean, it's not. I mean, the damage done to the uh, to the ecology, to the, the wildlife and fish habitats, to the ecosystems, all of that on its own should provoke outrage. Okay, so that's one thing. But there's an even bigger issue coming down the pipe, and that is, and I alluded to this earlier in the interview, which is is that all of these issues like reclamation. Uh, have I think there's like 300,000 wells that have been drilled in in Alberta somewhere around there. And, no, there's and it, four four hundred and ninety thousand. Okay, four hundred ninety thousand. Four hundred ninety thousand. But is it three <laughs> three hundred thousand that are still either inactive, uh, producing, or abandoned, or orphaned? Uh, I I don't have the categories right now. In terms of abandoned, the the number of abandoned wells is somewhat of a a gray area um the uh the, the regulator says there's about 85,000 abandoned wells um but it's probably more likely about 170,000 abandoned wells but these are really just administrative terms in terms of uh when it's abandoned it means it no longer has a company that is owning it but all 490,000 wells need to be reclaimed so uh, that's really the number that we should be thinking about and talking about and in terms of secured um, financially secured liability only about 0.6 percent of the total cost of reclamation is is in the bank right now so 99.4 percent of that liability in terms of reclamation is a public liability to the taxpayer that's where i was going with this that's exactly where i was going with this so and and that number uh, is estimated now at about three hundred billion dollars. Okay, so here's the here's the danger. Um, okay, we've known that since about 2018 that the tra energy transition, the global energy transition, was accelerating. Then the shock of the pandemic, uh, COVID nineteen pandemic, followed by the shock of Russia's invasion of Ukraine and the creation of an energy crisis, and energy security issues coming to the fore have accelerated it by, I don't know what factor of what, but, but very, very significantly. So the things that in 2018, when my sources would say, oh yeah, we're going to hit the inflection point, you know, of EV adoption in the early 2030s, everything is happening a decade earlier than we had expected. And now that things have accelerated even more, we can expect peak oil demand, peak natural gas demand, all of those things to happen quicker than we had expected. We're moving so fast at a global level that it is, it's a blur. And the problem is that all of these environmental liabilities that have been kicked down the road with the assumption that somewhere 10, 20, 30, 40 years, you know, the industry will pay for it then. If the industry begins to start failing in the late 2020s or early 2030s, I mean, we've already seen the junior sector fail. It's a very good chance that those environmental liabilities will not be paid for by industry and that they will fall on the taxpayer. And literally, they are so big that either it would bankrupt Alberta or more likely, they will simply never be remediated. They will never be mitigated. And we will have 
significant portions of the province with with polluted and with damaged uh, ecosystems and uh, and damaged environment uh, and and with no hope of ever cleaning them up. So this is either a comp. It's either it's either a financial disaster, an environment disaster, or a financial and an environment disaster. That's what we're that that's what in Alberta is staring down the barrel of. Would you agree or disagree? I I would agree. I would agree, and I would add also that even if these areas, if we miraculously found. 260 or 300 billion dollars to reclaim them they are still never going to be restored to their original ecological conditions because they simply cannot the the damage to the soils uh is permanent uh, and the damage to the biota is permanent and and so we would be um you know uh, fools to think that uh the this this the footprint of the industry is going to ever be reclaimed to a healthy uh, ecological function. It's just not going to happen. Yeah, this is a serious issue that uh, is, and, and the interesting thing here, uh, I, I mean, I speak from my own personal point of view, because I've always thought of myself as somebody who was inside the oil and gas tent, but a critic of, of, of the industry and its its practices like this. And, and always with the eye to the long-term future of the oil and gas industry is not as feedstock for fuels, but feedstock for advanced materials. You stop burning it and you start using it to make things, basically. And even in in the in the scenario that that I envision, where we're we're making you know uh, carbon fiber and and all sorts of other materials out of bitumen and and captured CO two and stuff. Even then, I was just interviewing an economist uh, with a big global uh, consulting uh, firm the other day, and he said the market, the global market, is already trying to work out, figuring out how to price in carbon emissions intensity into oil purchases. So now, if you have a, a, mm -hmm. a barrel like you do with bitumen, where you have a high emissions intensity, you're going you're gonna to be penalized for that. And those like like Norway that have very low emissions will will they'll get a premium for that. And it, how long? And I would say it's not very long. And the industry is probably thinking about it now. Environmental liabilities will be priced into that barrel of oil. And and Alberta is yeah the sorry go ahead. No, I was just going to say that the the, the economics are becoming increasingly more tenuous uh, with with time for the industry because uh, divestment is a major phenomenon in the world uh, today. And as soon as the, the financial foundation uh, that supports the, the projects in terms of uh, their loans, uh, their insurance um, to, to, to undertake projects, that sort of thing, as soon as that's gone, the projects will stop dead in their tracks. And so this is what the industry is most afraid of, it's divestment. They can they can, you know, uh, sort of blow smoke till the cows come home uh, about the science and just continue to sow confusion. But if their if their money uh, is tap is cut off, they're gone. Well, and that's what did in the juniors. The juniors. Uh, I did an interview right. with the uh, Alberta Securities Commission in 2018 when already the the number of junior oil and gas companies 
had uh, fallen from 216, I believe it was, maybe 230 uh, down to uh, 87 in, in, in the space of two years. And a lot of it is because they simply can't get capital. No one wants to invest, yeah. only the big companies. And I did another interview here uh, just last month uh, with uh, an oil and gas team that had transitioned from uh, oil and gas into clean energy. And they said, one of the reasons we did it is because nobody will give oil and gas any money. And so we had to transition into a different type of, of energy. The And, and the, the, the big takeaway here, I think, Kevin, is that the status quo is changing so rapidly. And the longer that Alberta hangs on to the, the status quo, as evidenced by the AER, the, the the greater the likelihood of a of a disaster, a catastrophe, environmental, financial, economic, and so on. So anyway, on on that yeah, and cheery, also social, yes, <laughs> well, indeed, I mean that flows out of all those other catastrophes. So yeah. on mm-hmm. on uh, on that cheery note, Kevin, we'll we'll perhaps <laughs> wrap up this interview. I'm no doubt that I'll be coming back to you again and again as we continue our deep dive on the Alberta Energy Regulator. So thank you very much for this. Thank you very much for your interview, and I hope uh, your listeners find it of uh, some use and some interest.